0: Listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. And now, would you please stand as we receive Scripture together? I'll be reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 6, starting in verse 19. your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Well, my symptoms included paranoia, hypervigilance, uh, loss of trust, irrational decision-making processes, lack of sleep, and more. The cause, I was the target of a long-term prank for months. I dreaded coming into the office because someone was messing with my books. Someone with a key was coming into my office when I wasn't there, and they were taking just one, two, three books at a time off the shelf, turning them over, and putting them back. Absolutely horrible. And they are only doing a couple every couple of days, so I never knew if to, to, how many are there going to be today. Are there, is the whole thing going to be? Like, is it just all going to be gone? I never knew. And I came in every day paranoid, and i would worried, and I'd come home, and my wife would say, how many books today? Are you okay? And, <laughs> and I'd, I'd scan my shelves to, to see, you know, has someone violated my inner sanctum? More than once, I was sitting across the table from someone, you know, Praying with them, counseling them, something like that, very important, when over their shoulder I'd see an upside-down book, <laughs> and it was impossible to focus on the child of God in front of me. When, there's a, when someone's messed with my stuff, I, I got distraught enough eventually that my wife uh, went into the office and said, look, if you guys know who's doing it, tell them to stop. Um, It is not good for Joey's mental health. So when I finally found out that it was Pastor Nathan, I felt so betrayed. Not betrayed that he pulled a prank. I am always in favor of office hijinks. But betrayed because he should have known how closely this one was hitting to home. Which, of course, says a lot more about me than it does about him. I tried to explain when he was like, dude, why are you so bent out of shape about this? I tried to explain why messing with my books bothered me so much. And the best I could come up with is, I mean, you all know the feeling of having like an intimate space be invaded. Um, Like when your mother-in-law comes to visit and after she leaves, you find out she did the laundry and folded your underwear. (laughs) It felt like that. Like, dude, stay out of my underwear drawer. These are my books. And then I began preparing for this sermon, and reading this passage brought the whole traumatic experience right back as if it just happened yesterday. Because if it's true what Jesus says that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, then I suppose it's true that if you mess with my treasure, you mess with my heart. Somehow, without me even noticing, my heart had settled in and made itself at home in my library. I thought my books were just tools, reference materials for my work, but they had become more than that. Somehow, each of them had become a little token or a little icon of my education or my interests or my intelligence. Each one had become a little mirror for my ego, sort of reflecting back to me what I thought about myself. Uh, Altogether the the whole library makes, each book made up just one little part of the shield that I had put out in front of myself that, that was designed to keep people from suspecting that I may be making this up as I go along, and am actually deep down fairly incompetent. Because if someone ever said, I don't think you know what you're doing, i say, yeah, but this guy says, and hold a book out in front of me. When Pastor Nathan messed with my books, he messed with my treasure, and it messed up my heart. Which, of course, is a temptation for all of us, right? I don't mean the temptation to mess with me. Please resist that one. I mean the, the temptation to, to put your heart, to rest your heart on some. Thing, some possession, some bank account, some retirement fund, uh, some collection or some hoard or some secret stash. And when that thing, whatever that thing is, when it loses its shine or loses its value or is lost or your friends start to mess with it, then, then when your heart loses its treasure, man, your true allegiances, where, where your heart really rests comes immediately to the surface because your heart starts to do whatever it takes, uh, clamoring around to try to re-solidify the foundation underneath your heart, even if it means shopping for secret surveillance cameras for your own office. (laughs) If all it takes for you to fall apart is someone flipping your books upside down, or for the market to take a chunk out of your retirement account, Or your roommate, moving the remote control. If that's all it takes, well, it's a pretty good indicator of what your heart really rests on. And in this section of Jesus' discipleship manifesto, you know, what we're calling the, what we've all called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is taking his theme for the whole sermon of greater righteousness, you know, a righteousness that is more than just skin deep. It's more than just superficial obedience to an external law, but it's a righteousness that comes from a whole person, wholehearted orientation towards God, working itself out in in today's life while we wait for the kingdom of God to return. Jesus takes that theme of greater righteousness and begins to apply it to our daily lives, to areas of money and possessions, the stuff of life that we have to interact with every day. And in these few verses we're going to look at, he gives us one kind of really big idea, especially in verse 21 there, that he then works out and illustrates and applies in all sorts of different areas until finally giving us sort of the full answer to the problem, and way down in verse 33 and 34. But we're, we're going to take a couple of weeks to go through this whole passage in parts. But as we do, each week is going to be sort of governed by this same big idea introduced here in verse 21. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Will be also. Or put more, more colloquially, don't rest your heart on anything that doesn't last We'll put another way: Don't treasure anything temporary. I mean, don't treasure anything temporary, because at some point, what's temporary will pass. And if the weight of your heart, the permanent weight of your heart, is resting on something temporary, eventually, the bottom's going to drop out, and your heart will have nowhere to land. Now. Let's jump into these verses, see how Jesus applies this idea to how we think about our money and our possessions. We're picking up in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. If you didn't bring a Bible with you and you don't want to get out your phone, you can grab the Bible underneath the seat in front of you. It's on page 964. We're starting there in verse 19. And as we, we come to this verse, to chapter 6, verse 19, we're, we're starting to move in Jesus' sermon from uh, how that greater righteousness theme works itself out in how we pursue God. You remember we've been talking about prayer and giving to the poor and fasting. And all of those things need to be done out of the same greater righteousness. Jesus is moving from that focus to now saying, all right, let's drill into the everyday stuff of how you interact with things, with people, with the anxiety that comes around an uncertain future. Because the question is, how do we live and grow and even flourish as the, the fully integrated, you know, single, whole, virtuous, wholly devoted to God people that Jesus is calling us to be. How do we flourish as that without resting our hearts on money or possessions or whatever we can get our hands on to help, you know, feel like there's some insurance against that uncertain future, Jesus is going to answer that question throughout this whole section, we're just going to dig into the beginning of the answer. Let's start by looking at verses 19 through 21. If you've been around the Sermon on the Mount before, you probably remember this part. It's it's very poetically put and very memorable. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, Uh, but alternatively, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not Break in and steal. Because wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, in those first two verses, there's an obvious antithesis being made. You can lay up for yourself treasures either on earth or in heaven. And if your treasures are on earth, well, then they're subject to destruction. Either You know, the malevolent intentional destruction of a thief who breaks his way in to steal anything of value that you have or the sort of unintentional but no less destructive of the just decay of time or those irrational forces like moths and worms and rust that just slowly eat away at things. In an agrarian society, that kind of thing you know, hits, that kind of illustration there hits pretty hard. You spend all season planting and watering and tending and weeding and harvesting and then storing your crops only halfway through the winter to go into the barn and find half of it has been consumed by a mold or a moth or a bug or something along those lines. And, you know, your stomach drops, your heart sinks, you don't have enough left to live on. So what do you do now? In the type of world we live in, we're more used to things like last Friday's Fed chairman speech, eight minutes that cost $80 billion in the economy, and your heart sinks, and your stomach drops, and you don't have enough to live on anymore, what do you do next? Jesus says, look, there's there's two ways to approach this whole question of our relationship to money and possessions, and one way is to treasure the things of the earth. On the other hand, you could lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where all of those passive and active destructive forces hold no sway, no moth, no rust, no thieves. See, he's using kind of the classic Wisdom, tradition, storytelling device of giving us, you know, two ways, two paths. There's the the way of the wise and the way of the foolish. There's the way of flourishing and the way of destruction. And by presenting both, he offers us a choice. Which way do you want to follow? The way of wisdom or the way of, of foolishness? Now, what he's saying here doesn't require much explanation. It's fairly obvious. It's foolish to store things you value in places where they can be stolen or otherwise destroyed or consumed. For instance, we we now have to keep our room temperature butter in the kitchen cupboard because one of our cats developed a taste. (laughs) And if we leave the butter on the counter, the next day we will find a broken butter dish on the floor And this weird little abstract sculpture of butter left from being pawed and licked by one of the cats. And then the game becomes, let's find out where he threw it up, (laughs) somewhere in the house, right? It's foolish to value something and then leave it where it can be destroyed by an irrational animal. So if you love your butter, don't leave it out where the cat can eat it. If you value something, don't store it where it can be stolen, We're destroyed. But butter in a kitchen cabinet is one thing. What about the things that we actually care about? Where can we possibly store anything material where it isn't subject to destruction or theft? Do any of us own one single thing that won't eventually wear down, wear out, and wear away? Anything. You may think that yeah, a diamond or some other precious metal or something like that. But is there any place where you can store it where it cannot be stolen? As the saying goes, there's no such thing as an unpickable lock, just locks that haven't been picked yet. See, in these two verses, 1920 and then in 21, Jesus is telling us hey, there's only one secure place where treasure cannot be destroyed, cannot be stolen, and that's in heaven. But last I checked, there's no way to store any of the material things I value in heaven's vault. So what's the solution? Well, I think it comes through in verse 21. So take a look at the verse again. Jesus says, "'For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also.'" "'Where your treasure is, there your heart is.'" Notice the connection Jesus makes between your treasure and your heart, between what you deem to be valuable and therefore what all of your focus and life gets oriented around. Now, it's important to remember that in the Jewish way of using the word heart to stand for a part of ourselves, they don't typically use it to refer to the seat of emotions or desires uh, like we do. You know, when we say, my heart went out to you or she stole my heart or home is where your heart is or or any of those sayings, uh, they mean more than, it's more all-encompassing than just emotions and desires. It also includes your intentions, your will, your thinking, your moral decision-making. In short, everything about who you are, you. The heart is the, the sort of seat of the whole person, the way Jews would use the word. So when Jesus says, hey, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Yeah, it's true that that's where your desires will, will go and be pointed, but he means something much more holistic than that. Where your treasure is, is where you are. Where your treasure is, that's where You are. That's what defines you. You know, another way of putting it is wherever, whatever you find most valuable in this world, that's where your heart is. That's what yourself is resting on. That's the direction in which your whole person is pointed. That's the foundation on which you build your life. And we have a word for pointing ourselves in the direction of the thing we love most. We call it worship. What you treasure is what you worship. So let's reread these verses uh, to see the point that Jesus is making. We all worship what we value most. No human being is exempt from this. We all give something ultimate or highest honor or value or worth in our lives, and our orientation towards that thing, the way we live our lives in light of that thing, is we call it worship. If we all worship what we value most, then we have two ways, Jesus says, of being worshipers. We can, we can worship. We can ascribe ultimate value Two, we can treasurize the material things of this world, the things that are temporary and transient and fleeting, or we can can worship, we can ascribe ultimate value to, we can treasurize what Jesus calls the treasures in heaven, the things that are permanent and perpetual and enduring. Now, what are the the treasures in heaven? Well, Jesus has been hinting at that answer, the answer to that question since the beginning of chapter 6. He keeps telling us there's a reward, there's a treasure waiting for those whose hearts are wholeheartedly oriented towards God, who are living in light of wanting to please God first and foremost and pursue Him entirely. What will that treasure consist of? It's probably not a bag of gold. It's hard to, I mean, we don't know because Scripture, well, just words seem to fall short of describing what the treasures of heaven are, but over and over again, Scripture pictures for us what, excuse me, one Bible scholar says, uh, extrapolates the advanced tastes of what we have here, what we're made for here, and shows us the treasures of heaven are a love of undiluted, a, a way of living that is entirely sinless. It's, 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 it's a responsibility without fatigue, integrity untarnished, deep emotions without tears, worship without restraint or disharmony or, or sham. Best of all, the, the presence of God in an, in an unqualified and unrestricted and personal way and treasures like that he says are just they're not subject to corrosion or theft and can never be lost so the the logic of these verses the argument of these verses is stark there's basically two ways to relate to money one way is to lay the weight of our hearts on our possessions or our bottom lines or our bank statements or our retirement accounts for all the reasons you'd expect, right? Safety, security, enjoyment of the things, the material blessings God has given you. And at a certain level, this even masquerades as wisdom because it's wise to plan for the future, to save for retirement, to manage a rainy day fund. But it's not wise to do those things and rest the entirety of your emotional security on that stuff. Everything we own is subject to loss, theft, decay, destruction. It's not a matter of if you'll lose everything you have. It's just a matter of when. One author says, if you look at any story of a quest for wealth, any story of a quest for wealth, give it enough time and it'll always seem like the vain pursuit of a mirage. If you've struck it rich, if you're financially secure, if you feel good about you where you are with your material possessions, give it time. Because it won't last. So Jesus says, look, there's two ways. It's an either or. Either you rest the weight of your heart on all of these temporary things that will not last, or you rest the weight of your heart on something permanent, a different kind of treasure that endures And can never be lost. So, the righteous, the the virtuous, or the wise follower of Jesus, this doesn't mean that the follower of Jesus doesn't save for the future and doesn't plan for retirement and doesn't manage a rainy day fund and doesn't enjoy the material blessings that God has given them now. It just means don't put your heart there. Because you have no guarantee that they're going to last. So don't rest the whole weight of who you are on all that stuff. There's a better place to rest the weight of your heart. Don't treasure anything temporary. It's not wise. It's not righteous. Because where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. That's a lot in just the first three verses, but Jesus isn't done trying to drive home to us his conviction that our relationship to money is not, it's not a neutral issue. How we relate to our money, you know, the heart level of of value which we ascribe to our stuff, it has the power to change who we are and also to kind of open the window on who we are, make it obvious to those around us. And he uses this this incredible word picture to describe what our fundamental heart attitude towards money does to us. Look at verses 22 and 23. Jesus says the eye is the, the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But, again, another contrast, if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if then the light that is in you is actually darkness... Well, then how great is that darkness? Now, because we're 2,000 years after this was written, the whole, you know, force of this illustration doesn't really hit us the way it would have hit Jesus' first hearers, so we'll have to unpack it a little bit. Uh, It's fairly obvious, you know, the eye is sort of metaphorically the window between a a person's inside and their outside. We even use the same phrase, the eyes are the window to the soul. Uh, Well, in the Jewish way of thinking, uh, your eye is that kind of organic connection between who you are internally and the desires and drives that motivate you, and how you present externally in the way that you behave and the way that you operate or live within the world. So just as a window illuminates a room, you know, an otherwise windowless room, by letting light in, so the, the eye, the inside-outside kind of congruence of who you are uh, illuminates the whole body, the whole person. So Jesus says, if your eye is healthy, then your whole body will be full of light. And the word word healthy is fascinating because it carries these multiple layers of meaning depending on which part of the context of the sermon that you you read it in. Uh, At its basic level, it's a word that means single or singularly focused, So it carries with it resonances of the ideas we've been exploring throughout this whole sermon of wholeness or completeness or undivided loyalty. And so it it, it ties right back to the, the, the main point of this whole sermon that this greater righteousness comes from being wholly integrated, from being single, from being wholeheartedly oriented towards God. Even as Jesus said, you therefore must be... Holy oriented towards God, even as he is wholly oriented towards himself. And when you read it, kind of in that, that first layer definition, Jesus is saying, hey, if you are wholeheartedly devoted to God, then your body, your whole body, your whole self will be full of light. But he's ex- exploiting the multiple layers of meaning inside the, the word because every time this word shows up in the Jewish Old Testament in a context of money or material things or possessions – then the same phrase, a healthy eye, means to be generous or to be kind, to use your material things in such a way as to, to bless others around you. And so, Jesus says if, if you're generous, then your whole body, your whole self will be full of light. So, if, if you're the kind of person who takes uh, notes in your Bible, uh, or if you're using one of these Bibles under the seat in front of you and you want to throw somebody off like 10 years from now when they discover it, um, circle the word healthy or good or sound, whatever it says in, in your translation, uh, circle it and in the margin just write whole and generous. If your eye is whole and generous... Jesus is saying, Look, if you are righteous inside and out by being wholly oriented towards God and generous with your money, then your whole self will be full of light. But on the other hand, if you are unrighteous inside and out by being wholly oriented towards yourself and greedy and stingy with your money, then your whole self will be full of darkness. It's a brilliant wordplay that, that carries through the big idea of the whole sermon how our internal disposition needs to be just as righteous as our external actions and our outward behavior. And and it also applies that, that idea to this specific discussion about money in this section. And the metaphors of, of light and darkness uh, paint this really vivid picture of the soul destruction that is at stake. And how we relate to our money. The, the ideas of greediness and stinginess that's carried in that phrase, if, if your eye is bad, literally, if you are evil-eyed, which is a common Jewish idiom for greed. If you're evil-eyed, that greediness, that stinginess may look like light because it may look like God is blessing you materially. But it's pure Darkness. And one scholar writes that that darkness is especially appalling if the person deceives himself. If he thinks his eye is good when it is bad, he talks himself into believing that his nominal loyalty to kingdom values is actually deep and genuine, when in fact it's shallow and contrived. He says, that person's darkness is darkest who thinks his darkness is light. So Jesus says with the, this word picture and, and the verses before it, your heart is going to go wherever what you treasure most is. And where your heart goes, your eye goes. Your, your whole inside, outside character goes. And it will fill you with either light or darkness. So, since this is a discipleship manifesto written to followers of Jesus, Jesus is saying, look, if your heart is on material things and you greedily hoard what you can against the concerns of the future and you refuse to be generous and kind with your material resources and you call yourself a follower of Jesus, then verse 24 shows up. No one can serve two masters. For either you will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. All through this section, Jesus is setting up these contrasts, heaven and earth, light and darkness, good and evil. And the stark contrasts continue when he says God and money. And we should remember that that the Hebrew idiom, hate the one and love the other, doesn't mean you experience that full spectrum of feeling that, that you are wholly loving God while wholeheartedly and completely hating everything material. It's a way of saying that, look, when two things of value compete with one another, one of them is always going to get the preference. One of them is always going to be chosen over the other. So you need to love the one and hate the other. Don't push this to the extremes, uh, that we need to hate all material things. Nobody should ever save for retirement. Don't manage a rainy day fund. Don't invest. Don't do anything like that. Uh, Look, God's the one who made all the material we're talking about. He's the first materialist, okay? The point is, as much as you love those things, there must be a higher love. There has to be a love for God that supersedes your love for stuff. That when when push comes to shove, our loyalty to our stuff is always pushed out of the way by our loyalty to God. Because Jesus is saying, you cannot be mastered by both. You cannot wholeheartedly serve both. It's one or the other. This is an either or. So don't treasure anything temporary. If you do, if you place the weight of your heart on material things, you're going to find yourself constantly serving them, being mastered by them, being anxious about losing them. And, and over time, loyalty to stuff will slowly push out loyalty to God. But Jesus says, look, there's, there's a better way. And can you imagine how much better our lives would be if our hearts didn't rest on our stuff, if we didn't treasure temporary things and ask them to do what they cannot do? My heart has been restless since Thursday at about 4.45, because that's when I realized I lost my pen. I know, it's a tragedy. If you were here a couple of years ago, you might remember once when I confessed accidentally going down the internet rabbit hole of expensive pens, and then I, I eventually bought one. And I don't wag your finger at me. I bought one. <laughs> Never mind. It was totally fair. Um, and it traveled the world with me. We took it. On, I had it in my pocket all throughout sabbatical. It went all over the world. It was this nice. Uh, okay, I won't describe it. Sorry. It was it was a nice pen that I really liked, and then I lost it. Couldn't find it anywhere. And the company that made them went out of business. And then I found one on eBay. So I bought another one. And then on Thursday at 4.45, I realized it's gone again. Thank you for those expressions of sympathy. I spent all weekend, every spare moment when I wasn't doing something out, going, I wonder where that pen is. Maybe it's in the same place as the other one. Maybe when I find it, I'll find them both. And I'll have two. Maybe it fell out of my pocket in the parking lot, and I was in the parking lot looking around all the cracks that we have out there. It's like, oh, man, i got to find this before we resurface this thing. No luck. It's like, maybe it's in my office, all over my office, nothing. Maybe it fell out of my pocket in the chair, in the car, take the chair apart, nothing. Uh, maybe it's in the kitchen. I, there was 30 minutes between when I knew I'd used it last and when I realized I'd lost it. Maybe it was in the kitchen and it wasn't there. And this morning, I was I was telling somebody how ironic it is that I was... You know, preaching on, "Don't put your heart on temporary things." In, in the meantime, I was looking in all of the pen cups in the church uh, for the pen. And then I, it suddenly hit me. It was th- I spent three minutes in Pastor Jeff's office, and his chair ate my pen. And I found it this morning. Thank you. And now my heart is finally at rest. I'm going to put this back in my pocket. <laughs> Can you imagine how much better life would be if we couldn't get bent out of shape over losing something as small as this? Or how much better life would be if I didn't get bent out of shape when one of my best friends in the world good-naturedly teases me by flipping my books upside down? Or when I get the, the quarterly retirement fund statement in the mail and it comes in and you're just like, oh no, how soon do we have to die now? <laughs> <laughs> or you apply for that job and an email comes and before you open it, you're like, what if I don't get it? Or, you know, when, when you know that grades are coming out and you're like, this, this is it, if I don't... I don't hit what I need. How much better would life be if if we weren't so wholly resting the satisfaction of our hearts on all of these temporary things that will not last forever? See, Jesus is not trying to take away our fun by telling us not to treasure temporary things. He's not saying, look, you have to give away everything, forsake everything that doesn't last and only devote yourself to the things of permanence. He's saying, look... There is a soul-crushing anxiety that comes with trusting these things with with your heart, which they can never hold. And I don't want that for you. I don't want that for you. There is a better place to rest your heart. There's a better place. There's a better person to trust your heart with. Now, I've, I've walked through this passage and kind of tried to lay it out in a, in a logical way, but Jesus isn't actually using all that much uh, real cognitive, head-level language. He's using all these pictures and metaphors to kind of hit us down here. We're, we're never going to get this right by just uh, deciding one day, well, I'm going to value the kingdom of God more than everything else. It's not the kind of decision you just make once and then your heart follows because this isn't something we argue ourselves into this is something that we are drawn into as our hearts are transformed to to see and to recognize the beauty of our redemption in jesus and to see it as more beautiful than all the little things that seem so much closer it's it's why i mean we have to ask ourselves like what is drawing my heart? Like, what is pulling my heart out of itself so that it's, it's pulling me in that direction? Is it something as trivial as a, as a lost pen? Something as monumental as your future financial security? I mean, what are we being drawn towards? Because... Jesus calls us to to let our hearts be drawn towards God's kingdom and the riches that are ours in the kingdom to come. Or to put it another way, to put it the way it's developed later in the Old Testament, especially the Apostle Paul says, right? Our hearts are supposed to be drawn to Jesus, the one who, though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor, so that through his poverty we might, might become rich. So, as we wrap this up, a couple of questions we could ask ourselves about our relationship with money. First question, are you, am I, trying to be as generous as possible, as generous as I can with the material things God has given me, or am I trying to be at least not the most greedy person I know? Am I trusting in my money, my possessions, my stuff, and my skills at acquiring them as the primary foundation, and Jesus is sort of the safety net when all that goes away? Are we making most of our decisions based on what's financially most beneficial to us instead of, hey, in what context can I serve God best with the skills He's given me? Or maybe some of you are like me, you have complicated charts and graphs that show your net worth and you can track your personal rate of return over the last year, five years, ten years, you can map it out, the whole thing. And then somebody asks you, have you grown spiritually lately? And you're like, uh, I don't have a chart for that one. Or could you wax eloquent for hours about your complicated investment strategy and how you are getting such a great return on investment or about your killer new business plan, but you come up short for words when someone asks you to, hey, just explain the gospel to me. Man, most of our prayers seem to be about our stuff and our circumstances, right? Trying to get God to give us more of what we want or think we need instead of just being thankful and giving him praise for what he's already given throughout this whole sermon on the mount matthew 5 6 7 jesus keeps taking all of these areas of our lives and kind of upping the ante on us raising the bar and saying hey let's rethink our relationship to this thing in this case money He's not letting us get away with pretending that the way we use our resources, you know, the way we save and spend and share and hoard, he's not letting us get away with pretending that has nothing to do with who we really are. Because he says it is simply not possible to live greedily focused on acquiring and hoarding money and also wholeheartedly being devoted to God. Only one treasure is ultimate. Our hearts will only go in one direction. So, what are you trusting in? Something temporary that will eventually give way, or something permanent that will hold you for all of eternity? You can only build on one. One is wise, one is foolish. And where your treasure is, I mean there your heart will be also. Pray with me. Oh boy, Father, we we need your grace to break through the thick skins of our hearts, that they may be softened and drawn to the true treasures, the true riches of your goodness to us in Jesus. Father, we confess that the things of this world, of this earth, the kingdoms of this earth are so now and so present that it is difficult to stay focused on the, the treasures that are future and that are coming Father, we need your grace to not only build us towards that future, but break us of our commitments to the things of now, that we may be followers whose hearts are wholly devoted to you. And being wholly devoted to you, Father, find that integrity and wholeness that you offer in life. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.